your work life, all of our work lives. Welcome to Work with Marty Nemco. I think it's fair to say that most people would call me a cranker. That is, I, not that I'm cranky, although that occasionally is true, but I'm always working. I work, you know, people would easily call me a workaholic, except that I don't feel compelled to, I just love it. Anyway, but there are many people, if there was ever an iconic phrase describing work in this current era, it would be work-life balance. And then there are some people who have just thrown in the towel. Now, throwing in the towel is never going to make, make it onto the radio or TV or articles or whatever. But I thought it would be interesting, but, but rather, you know, I'm obsessed with this fairness thing and balance thing, that I'm going to make the best case I can for the joy of cranking, the case for the low-risk, more moderated life, and then finally, the case for giving up, for throwing in the towel. So, um, without further ado, let me begin with that. Um, the case for cranking. Today, lifestyle gurus urge us to slow down, to breathe, to honor the life part of work-life balance. Yet I have found that many of my most fulfilled and contented clients, and okay, me, tend to crank. We fill nearly every moment with productivity. We don't necessarily rush, but we tend to follow legendary UCLA basketball coach John Wooden's advice, don't hurry, but be quick. And among my clients who are beset by anxiety or grief, grandma's standard advice to stay busy has often been as healing as therapy or Xanax. When I asked the client who had focused on staying busy, how's your anxiety? She laughed. She said, I don't know. It seems like I'm too busy for all that. Of course, stay busy is advice that's more likely to help with mild anxiety than, of course, with severe cases, in which case stay busy often needs to be accompanied by, like, cognitive behavioral therapy or medication and such. Crankers really do make the most of most minutes. If there's even a mere minute before a meeting, they're typically checking email. If they're walking, they're usually thinking, not spacing out. If they're working on a project, they stay focused. They resist distraction until they're done, or if it's a longer project, until they've reached a logical stopping place. Crankers are more likely to emphasize quality time over quantity time with family. They make time, but not undue time for recreation. They're more likely to take a 45-minute hike than to play a six-hour golf game. They're more likely to play a half-hour video game than to binge-watch Game of Thrones or go on a few-hour stroll through the mall. If you're an anxious person, a particularly effective form of staying busy is to care for someone less fortunate, like be a big brother or a big sister, care for a seriously ill friend, or just something that I just did this afternoon because my sweet doggy Einstein died a few weeks ago. I adopted a stray doggy from a pound who would otherwise very likely would be put down. Anyway, as always, one size does not fit all. Uh, your values and your physical condition, your mental condition, can make cranking the last thing you want to do. But in today's era of lifestyle gurus, almost monolithic lauding of slowing down, this little talk aims to offer just a bit of balance. There are joys of cranking. 
So now I want to take the case, make the case for not giving up, but slowing down what, what I might call kind of the low-risk lifestyle. The media cherry-picks the risk-takers. They're the, the, the ones who won, the actor who made it big, the athlete who defied the odds, the kid from the gritty streets who's now a multimillionaire. Alas, for every one of those, there are millions of people wondering, follow your passion? Why, did, why didn't that work? Instead, they're struggling to pay the rent, even on a gritty street. So in a small attempt, again, to offer balance, here is the case for the low-risk life. And I'll present it with a hypothetical example, because stories are more interesting than just laying out facts. So sure, the hero of our story would have found it cool to be an athlete or maybe an actor or an entrepreneur who took his startup public, whereupon he exited selling a zillion shares, went on to live the life of the rich if not famous. But rare for a young adult, our hero listened to his parents urging to be realistic. So he didn't opt for a college that would burden him with a mountain of debt, but rather started a community college, then transferred to, let's say, San Francisco State, He didn't major in humanities or social sciences, but accounting. He didn't let himself get seduced by startups, foosball tables, and Red Bull, but instead he enrolled in a federal internship program. The federal government has great internship programs. He then took a job as an analyst in the first federal agency that'd have him. He ended up being a saver more than a spender, and he realized that buying luxury rather than middle-of-the-road items would yield too little additional pleasure compared with diminished financial security. So he found it easy to sock away 100 bucks a month on top of the government's retirement plan, which is better than most private or nonprofit sector jobs provide. Continuing on this path of low-risk, moderate, moderate, moderate lifestyle, he was feeling that the U.S. economy's future may not be as bright as its past has been. So he didn't invest in stocks, but instead, whenever he had an extra 500 bucks, he used Bankrate.com to find the nation's highest-yielding CD guaranteed by the government. He knew that those beat inflation and provide the miracle of compounded interest and demand no stress. Kind of an easygoing approach to life, a moderate approach to life. Nor did he aspire to save up for a home. He feels that housing is in a bubble. In merely a decent neighborhood in a coastal city like San Francisco, a house costs more than a physician can afford. So he rented a studio in the in a just decent neighborhood. Daunted by the 50% divorce rate and the painful, protracted, expensive divorce process and that many couples that stay married just kind of schlep along or worse, he dated and had a couple of good long-term relationships, even live-in relationships, but he didn't marry. He got a lot of pleasure from his relationships, romantic ones and platonic, as well as from his hobbies of acting and behind-the-scenes roles in community theater and playing guitar in a band, even writing some songs for it. He assessed the pleasure-to-risk ratio of those as far better than for drugs and alcohol. And per Steve Jobs' famous commencement speech advice, he wore sunscreen. There is nothing sexy about the moderate, low-risk life, working for the government and taking the kind of cautious approach. And as I said, it's certainly not touted by the media or even among most friends. It's not doesn't make the greatest party conversation. But... I wanted to make the best case I could for the low-risk, moderate, not workaholic, not driven lifestyle I could. And now, as promised, I want to make the case for the other extreme, giving up. Which, again, you're not going to hear on the media. You never hear these people, well, I gave up and I'm getting interviewed on the media. No. 
The media, let's say older people, if even if they're dealing with people in their 70s, the media is going to sing of old people doing amazing things. It'll tell stories that are told to them by this website called Encore.org that has got a big PR component about people who late in life spearheaded some Help the Poor initiative. Now, most older people hearing about such stories, if we're really, really being honest, which I obsess about trying to be, most older people hearing such stories are unlikely to be inspired to do the same. They're more likely to feel bad for having realistically assessed that late-in-life success is too unlikely to justify expending their waning physical and mental capabilities. Again, we don't ever like to talk about that. The golden years. We're saving the best for last. But the reality is when people are, say, 70 or older, they are waning in their physical and mental capabilities, and with very rare exceptions. So the media is unlikely to talk about, you know, I mean, I should say that the people who are... Who are um, for not buying that notion that I'm saving the best for last, they they just don't do that. They just feel their de- their decline accelerating, and they decide that it's wise to throw in the towel, to give up the battle. After struggling in life's boxing match for nine rounds, now weaker in their old age, they realize it's foolish to come out for a tenth round against some younger, stronger opponent. So in the real world, not the media-concocted world, most older people wisely lay down the sword and retreat to their garden, figuratively and often literally. Even if they live in an apartment, they tend their plants. They find solace in the miracle of growth. They tend the doggy, like the doggy I just adopted. I do love rest. You know, I whenever I've gone to of late because I wanted to find another dog to replace my dear Einstein. Whenever I go to a rescue or a pound or a shelter, those people who most they're unfortunately all mostly volunteer I wish they could get paid they're such kind people and they're such a a nice alternative from the ever harder world that it immediately is adjacent I adopted this doggy from the uh, Humane Society in Milpitas a wonderful place and just outside their door is the high powered go kill em, compete go public cutthroat Silicon Valley what an oasis. But I digress. In any case, um, a lot of these older people are not foolish to either literally or figuratively um, tend their plants, finding solace, as I said, in the miracle of growth. It is a welcome change from the rat races and dignities, from the ignored emails, the sabotaged efforts, having an unwise younger boss, especially when a likely terminal disease hits. Even if it's something like early cardiovascular disease, it's not going to kill them for a decade or more. Gardening is a comforting reminder of the, sub, the cycle of life. My former classroom mate, Peggy Hansen, when she had end-stage cancer and it was she had pain that couldn't be cut by morphine, what did she do? She tended her houseplants. It was one of the few things she wanted to do. A couple decades ago, I contacted one of my favorite professors back at Berkeley, Reed Tuttenham, who had retired, and I asked what he's doing with his time. And he, his answer was like, staying ahead of the weeds. And I was surprised. Why would a brilliant guy, he still wasn't that old, why would he waste his precious remaining heartbeats? I now understand. His chances of making a difference relative to the effort required had diminished to where gardening was an understandable, maybe not the only choice, but an understandable choice. 
I think you, my dear listeners, know I haven't yet reached that stage. I continue to have a full docket of career counseling clients. I do this radio show. I write about three to four articles every week for Psychology Today. But I can envision a time, I hope it's 10, 15 years from now, when I'll decide that my contributions relative to the slings, arrows, and silence I've received aren't worth it. So I share this with you in hopes that other people who are 50 plus, 60 plus, 70 plus will, and I'm really mainly talking about people 60 plus, 70 plus, 80 plus, will replace their feelings of guilt that are being, that are perpetrated by the media cherry picking these aberrant outlier success stories and instead have an acceptance that it's okay to just, whether it's literally or figuratively, tend your garden. Now, I'd like to give out the phone number. If you uh, want to comment on, I've done the best I could to make the case both for all, for all three, for cranking, for moderation, and for hanging it up at some point. If you want to comment or question about that, or if you have any kind of a work problem, I do what are called workovers here at KELW. Um, you can call, and I will do my best to help you. I'm going to be finishing my 30th year uh, next month here at KELW and hope to do it for a lot longer. Um, so I've had enough experience that I should be able to help you. If I can't by now, forget it. Anyway, the phone number here, work with Marty Nemco, 415-841-4134. That's 415-841-4134. Of course, most people, whether you're a cranker or you're a work moderate, work-life balance person, we are stressed. I am seeing absolutely ever more stressed because of the work pressures, but also there is such tension, and I'm being as always honest, between the races, genders, issues of politics, there is tension. There is a lot of tension. When you're not, you know, sure, if you're dealing with your little bubble, you know, then there isn't tension. You're just saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, there's a tremendous amount of tension in the workplace and out. And so I put together um, eight simple, free, de-stressors that you can do by yourself. Many of them even at work. First one, I'm doing it kind of chronologically when you wake up in the morning. Try to enjoy a morning reverie. When I wake up and have a few extra minutes, I stay in bed deliberately in semi-wakefulness and I muse on the upcoming day, what I'm looking forward to, what I have to think about, whatever. Occasionally, I might even walk through my day's schedule. But more, more often, I just try to come up with one thing that makes me eager to jump out of bed or if not, jump out of bed get out of bed the second the simple de-stressor is to find your routine routine of course is comforting my typical morning routine is put up the coffee inspect and hybridize my roses which I do I develop new varieties of roses take my coffee and my doggy my new doggy no longer Einstein he was for 13 years a part of my morning ritual now it would, it's going to be the um, he was astray and so he didn't really have a name and he was only a, a, adoptable for a day or an hour so they gave him the name Bert but I don't like it so but anyway I whatever I'm still figuring out a name I may call him Pasha I may call him I don't know who knows it doesn't matter anyway I would take my coffee and my doggy outside and I will be doing that to enjoy the, my front yard and maybe encounter a neighbor to say hi to then call the doggy into the house which, used, you know, at least with Einstein, used to require me to bribe him with a bone. And then I would start working. I liked that ritual. It was very comforting. The third comforting uh, de-stressor I'd like to share with you is to work on something that comes easily 
but feels important. I gain comfort by getting the hard work out of the way first so I don't have it hanging over my head. But there are other people, if they have some discretion over their time, that find it more comforting to start by working on something they find easy yet important. Um, but I got to say that shopping on the internet probably doesn't qualify. Um, I'll give out the phone number again. If you've got a work-related problem or you want to comment on cranking versus slowing down, um, but especially, you know, I, I guess I'm mainly interested in helping you with your work problems. So if you want to talk about cranking versus slowing down, that's great. Uh, if you want to agree or disagree with my uh, my arguments about throwing in the towel rather than trying to save the best for last, even if you're 78, um, that's good. But if you are unemployed, and are, you know, even though we are at the 50-year low in unemployment, if you're unemployed, there's still a lot of people who are unemployed, underemployed, who have given up, that don't get counted. Uh, if you're well-employed and still unhappy, whether you're 16 or 76, I can usually help you with a work problem. The phone number here at Work With Marty Nemco, 415-841-4134. That's 415-841-4134. The next de-stressor I wanted to share with you, it's going to seem odd, is to stare. Even if you're at work, 30 seconds of staring at that flower on your desk, at that compelling image on your screen, or if you're lucky, at that view out your window, can be comforting, restorative. Even staring at nothing, just spacing out, can feel comforting. Just make sure 30 seconds doesn't turn to 30 minutes. Okay, let's go to the phones. I'll give out the phone number again. You've got a work-related problem the phone number, 415-841-4134. That's 415-841-4134. And now to the phones. What's on your mind? Uh, hi, uh, hi. Marty. My yes. name is Robert. Hello, Robert. Uh, so for about 15 years now, I've worked in social services. Uh-huh. Uh, for various nonprofits and also for um, uh, the city of San Francisco and also for Marin County. Okay. And, uh, you know, call, I don't want to call it a midlife crisis. I'm trying to get out of this industry. And my, my master's degree is in social service, is in social work. Uh-huh. And I, I would rather work in the private sector. And let me tell you why. I'm, I'm, I'm burnt out, uh, I'm overworked, and I'm tired of getting paid way under what I'm worth, what I know I'm worth. I've certainly heard that and, story uh, many times. You're not the only one, and my, I promise you. No, and my, my friends who work in the private sector, are you know, who are my age, are, you know, they're making, you know, twi- twice, sometimes three times as much as I'm making. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I'm busting my butt, and I'm, I'm tired of it, you know. Mm-hmm. I really am. And so, well, here's my thing. So I've been applying for... You know, various jobs that I think that, uh, you know, I, I'm i trying to use my degree and say, you know, and use, you know, my degrees in social work, like I said, and trying to apply for a place in the tech sector or whatever. They um, won't touch you. you. And I'm just not You're not going to get any anything. Headway. Never. You're not, of course you're not making any headway. Because it's so easy for an employer to place an ad and get 100 applicants that if they're looking for somebody in Silicon Valley, why would they take a social worker? No matter how much you talk about your transferable skills, you're really good at project management and you're good at writing reports, there's no way they're going to touch you. Career changers have only one option, they, two options. They either go back to school or three options. They either go back to school or they invoke their network because only people who like and respect you will either hire you or tout you over people who have experience 
or you manage to create your own connections by either joining organizations where people in your target career would be, if you, or um, making direct calls to you. Not you know, Google's not going to hire you. Let's just get real. You know, Facebook right. and Apple; those are all top of mind for everybody. They get fifteen hundred unsolicited applications a day. So you've got yeah. to either identify a set of small companies that are under the radar. Okay where you have some expertise. Let's say you, you, for whatever reason, you know something about flowers. I'm making this up out of left field. But you know something, right. you, you know, you're an avid of, you know, plant, uh, plant grower or whatever. But you're also, let's say, you're good at uh, writing reports and handling a lot of stress or whatever. You could lay those out to the people you know either in general or in the flower industry and say that you are a really serious hobbyist in this area. And that's your best chance because once a job is advertised, the party is over. They're going to get 100 applicants, and unless you're sleeping with them, uh, you know, you're their main squeeze, you ain't going to get hired. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. What if, what if uh, I have a lot of experience in management and also in operations? Because, you know, as a social, you know, I got out of direct service uh, I'm, I'm going to interrupt you. And what, no. I did, what I've been doing is I've been doing a lot of management and a Got lot it. of administrative no, I'm and gonna, I'm going to, as I said up front, I'm going to reiterate, transferable skills like management, you're managing in a social work context, is not going to be yeah. translated to somebody in Silicon Valley saying, oh, good, we're going to hire him to manage a software project development or something like that. Right. No. Okay. A- answering ads is really like pounding sand. You really do need to, A, either invoke your network, tell everybody, yes, tell everybody in your network that you're a really good manager. Great. No problem. And if there is some set of small companies that are in a domain you know something about, certainly you can hit those up. Certainly, if you want, join a board of directors or other opportunity to meet people on an ongoing basis so that you can make connections. But answering ads, you know, you're talking lottery odds, dude. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense? Thank you very much. I, I, yeah, no, totally. Thank you so much, Marty. Appreciate You're welcome, it. Robert. Take care. Be well. Okay. Uh, let's, I'll give out the phone number again, but we'll go right back to the phones. Um, if you've got a work-related problem of any sort, my job in here is to help you. It's not a job. I hate the word job. Or when people say I have a business as a career counselor, it's a calling. I love to do it. It's what I love to do. Uh, happy to help you with your work problem. Phone number here, work with Marty and Emco and KALW, 415 841 4134. That's 415 841 4134. And now back to the phones. It's your turn on the air. Uh, how can I help you? Hello. 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 How can I help you? What's on your mind? Uh, oh, you probably can't. I'm uh, 74. I'm uh, working for Uber. Okay. I don't have any degrees. Okay. I am smart, but that, smart that, matters, that's pretty, dude. That's pretty. That's pretty useless. If I was really smart, I'd have the degrees. Not. No. No. And, no. Uh, no. 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 I'm going to interrupt you right away. No, there are hell. You know, degrees, unfortunately, especially in this era of of great inflation, are more likely to be a function of persistence than smarts. There are a hell of a lot of smart hundreds in my book, Careers for Dummies. I listed hundreds of highly successful people who never went to college. So forget that, dude. If you're smart, and I don't, if you're, you know, unless you have end stage cancer, I don't care if you're 74. 
Smart is critical because smart means you can learn quickly. Smart means you usually means you're articulate. Smart means you you can you can synthesize and analyze. So I'm not ready to, to resign you to to the crap job of Uber or Lyft where you barely make any money after you take away your car expenses. Fair enough. Oh yeah, now they're plus they they're squeezing you. They, right. They've made what? How many billion dollars by uh, by going? Uh by doing a USL and they're 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 cutting down the amount of money that the drivers are getting about like a It's horrible. pleasing them. It's yeah. horrible. So okay, so let's let's help you out. Let's let's let you give the finger to Uber, but let's figure out what you're going to do. So you, in addition to being smart, tell me a couple of other clues about who you are that could help me help you find a better option. Okay, well I've got a, a, another trade that absolutely everybody has. I'm I'm a good writer. Good. I've okay. written a blog, and the blog was very popular with a certain group of people, who, cab drivers, actually, I was writing Great. against Uber back in the day. Okay. Uh, and uh, I was also, also people at City Hall would uh, would come by and say hello to me because they like what I wrote. So, I mean, I've got a, a fair degree of talent. Good. Uh, and I'm writing a novel, but that's going to be read by three no. people, and uh, probably that's about it. Right. So, so I don't know how to sell that exactly. I'm also a good photographer. So, but once again, that's a how many billion people are out there to do that? I want to integrate you know. all that stuff. So you wrote about taxi driving specifically, or did it, or did it go beyond that? I'm I'm fine with it either well, I was, way. I was also writing about San Francisco politics uh, okay. that he evolved. Uh, I wrote I wrote well enough to get the police department really pissed off at me. Okay, I really uh, like I <laughs> like the cab driver angle. It's a nice narrow angle. It's funny. Next week I'm going to be. Talking to a retired New York New York Police Department detective who wrote three books and he's made money and he's gotten a lot of major media. I'm not saying you're going to make millions, but given that you're a writer and you are smart and you're a photographer and you know cab driving and Uber driving, what if you? I mean, the the author of this, the, my guest next week, is something like it's like NYPD through the looking glass stories of what it's really like or something like that. What if I said at least as a sideline? You should write a book or continue your blog on, you know, through the looking glass, life as a cab driver, you know, something like that, life as a cab driver, Uber driver, what you don't know and should. And and then try to use that because the media loves people who are the underdogs. They love people who are struggle who are, you know, kind of at the at the the you know low end of the socioeconomic totem pole, but you're verbal and bright. What if you started to promulgate that? You know, maybe even sending articles, maybe creating a little column in a in a, a local publication uh, that will also give you excitement and hope. And instead of you, you know, what you led with me is, I'm 74. You're not going to be able to help me. I'm an Uber driver. No, <laughs> that's you know, I don't buy that crap. My father was working until he was 82, and he would have worked longer, except that they laid him off at that point. But you well, know, and actually. I, Actually, I'm surprised at how healthy I am at 74. Well, good. There's a yeah, lot of I mean, healthy people. I'm doing people. something that people half my age do, and I do it better. Well, there we go. So I'm not letting you hang it up. You're not ready to be. There are some people who are half dead. You're not half dead yet. So what if not I said, all. for starters, given this limited phone call, the time that we have, you know, I, I'm going to urge you to either revisit your blog, reintegrate, the, take some of those posts and turn them into a book. And then don't just write them and put them on the Internet because there's so much on the Internet now, it's very hard to get eyeballs, traffic. So instead, take your best stuff, send it to the Chronicle, send it to SF Weekly, send it to, to the East Bay Express, send it to everybody local, and what the hell? 
It, at minimum, it gives you hope. It's the same thing when people buy a lottery ticket. They know they're going to probably lose. But they feel like, you know, I got nothing going for me. Let me take a shot. It's only going to cost me a buck. Well, in this case, it's going to cost you zero. How do you feel about that? Okay, I think it's very good. Thanks a lot. Okay, I'm not letting you go yet. I have one more question. Tell me one thing that would surprise me about being... I was a cab driver in New York City when I was in college, so I know a little bit about this. But tell me one thing that might surprise my listeners about either being a cabbie or an Uber driver or a story. (laughs) I've uh, got too many stories. Tell me one. Okay, I'll give you a story. Uh, I had a guy that was going to rob me. He had a, uh, I mean, there were uh, there were three Hispanic guys, and they were speaking Spanish and pretended they didn't speak English. They spoke perfect English. Okay, and this was this was unusual because there was one older guy and two younger guys. Okay. And they wanted to, uh, they wanted me to drive in such a way that I would go through the projects at Twenty uh, Sixth Street. Mm-hmm. Instead, I took an angle uh, angle over. So that I was actually, I didn't have to go through the projects, and I was coming to the end where I was going to drop them off, and I uh, saw a bus, a bus in front of me, and uh, it dropped off, and so I parked in such a way that I would block the bus at about the time these guys started giving me trouble. So uh, uh, they, they said, hey man, I want to go in the project, and uh, and I said, no, this is good. And he said, What's the matter? Are you afraid? And I said, this is it. And the, and the bus came up and started blasting its horn and flashing its lights. The guys got out of the car and walked away from the projects that they wanted me to go into. I don't know what that story has to do with me making money, but that's the story. Well, you know, people like to hear real-world stories. I think we can't, we, in this today, in this day and age, I don't think we can use race. It's too sensitive a topic. I would encourage you to leave out the race. Well, I, I know I'd probably say Hispanic. I guess I could have said, well, I also had white guys try to rob me, so yeah, it doesn't... Yeah, we, this that is that not an bring, era, even if it's... The, Half my family is Mexican, for God's sake. Okay. You know, they just happen to be Spanish. I just think we're in an era where we're safer trying to not identify. Even the media will not identify the race of a perpetrator because uh, they just don't want to feed into stereotypes. So I'm, that's just another little tip. Anyway, I'm going to thank you for calling. You know what you can do? Are you, are you still there? All right, thanks for, the, uh, thanks for the advice. Okay, I wish you the best. Okay. Anyway, uh, if you've got a work-related problem, the phone number here at Work With Marty Nemco, 415-841-4134. That's 415-841-4134. When, um, before I started took, taking the series of calls, uh, I, was, I had started the show by talking about the case for cranking. I just really working 70, 80 hours a week, frankly, like I do. Uh, the case for moderation, the work-life balance, which is the normative recommendation these days, and the case for throwing throwing in the towel. There's a time to give up, and it doesn't get, often get discussed, and I talked about that. And then now I've been talking about ways to, uh, for people who are choosing the, you know, either the middle or the high-powered route, uh, some what I call de-stressors, and I shared a few. I'm going to share a few more. Writing in a journal... That helps you to reflect and offer yourself counsel. It's probably the source of advice you're most likely to accept because we tend to resist advice from other people if only because no one can know as well as you can all the factors that are affecting your decisions. So that's a de-stressor, for, including for me. I do. I, but what I like to, I want to say a little bit about writing in a journal. Some people feel they need to write every day and then it feels more like just another should. 
I've got that journal sitting next to my desk. And uh, and frankly, I put it in a hiding place because you know if you feel like somebody's going to see it, you don't feel you can be as you don't feel you can be as candid. So, but it's only when the mood strikes me, you know. And I'd say I'd only enter something in the in my journal once every two weeks. But I think having that there, and if you feel like that, either a particularly good day or a bad day or a dilemma, you know, writing about it, right? Maybe writing out the pros and cons is a nice de-stressor. Next, read aloud. That slows you down, and it enables you to savor and understand more deeply. If you like, read aloud to someone in person or by phone or Skype. You know, I enjoy reading or ad-libbing something into my webcam and posting it on YouTube. I've done that 300 times. I have 300 YouTube videos. Probably half of them are things that I read. Um, I try to read with expression so I'm not monotonic. And it's comforting, and it's hopefully helpful, and it's free. It's so easy. Okay, another de-stressor. Listen to calming music, obvious. Well, for me, one piece of music calms me more than any other, and I love music. I listen to music all the time. But there's one. It's called Spiegel im Spiegel, which means mirror in mirrors. I will often sit, often, that's a lie, maybe once a month, I'll sit with my eyes closed uh, and, and listen to it, and so I needn't open my eyes to replay it. I set YouTube for replay, which you, all you have to do is right-click the play icon and then click loop, and it will keep replaying. Spiegel im Spiegel, mirror in mirrors. And last, and probably not least, the a free, simple de-stressor is a hug. Of course, your hug's recipient can be someone you know, even your pet, like my new doggy I just adopted. I'm so excited. Although, as I still am grieving over my sweet Einstein. But even if you're a solo operator, you can find a recipient for your hugs, maybe at an animal shelter. I mean, it's on my mind right now. <laughs> or in a hospital's neonatal ward. As I was saying at the outset, for many people, life is getting more stressful. And I like to think that these eight bombs, and not bombs, bombs, B-A-L-M-S, <laughs> As, as well as, um, you know, I'll just stop there. They, I think they provide easy de-stressors, and unlike with chemical methods of de-stressing, they have no side effects. Okay, phone number again if you've got a work-related problem, 415-841-4134. That's 415-841-4134. And um, I want to talk about, again, about I'm on this de-stressing thing. I now I'm well aware that a disproportionate percentage of people listening to the show are job seekers. They may be, you know, currently employed or not employed, but they're they're they would like to find another job. And there's a concept that's a de-stressor for job seekers that my clients have found helpful and maybe you will too. I call it your emotional gas tank. Every job seeker starts their search with a full tank of emotional gas. But with each rejection, with each no response, some gas is burned. I'm hoping this little talk is going to boost your chances of landing a job before you run out of gas. First, I want to talk about what I'll call gas guzzlers. The first is what I call externalizing responsibility. Yeah, factors like race, gender, age, and looks can affect job prospects. But of course, if you focus on those, it's going to drain your gas faster. As corny as it sounds, Focus on what you can control. That would be, for example, an appropriate job target. Making a thorough and competent search, including tapping, as I said to the previous caller, 
tapping your existing network and making new connections. And whether that's being by taking a course, joining a nonprofit board, as I said earlier. The second gas guzzler I want to warn you about if you're a job seeker is excessive rumination. The philosophy of successful job seekers, in fact, successful people in most endeavors, is ready, fire, aim. Not ready, aim, fire. After just a moderate amount of preparation, they try things out. That's because getting real-world feedback enables them to adjust, to aim better. Of course, try to take low-risk actions. I mean, the the, the job seeker who, for example, is unsure of whether their pitch is going to work should, of course, first try it out on a friend or a low-priority employer. So there's ways to reduce the risk, but excessive rumination burns a lot of gas and risks your running out of gas before you land a job. The third um, gas guzzler, emotional gas guzzler, and your emotional gas tank if you're a job seeker is confusion. You're going to guzzle gas if you're unclear how to spend your job search time optimally. So start, if you don't already know it, by reading a couple of articles, yeah, you can read my book, Careers for Dummies. It will lay, lay out step by step what you need to do, and that'll avoid the confusion. Confusion leads to burning out, burning emotional gas. Two more of these gas guzzlers, then I'll turn to how to boost your cruising range of your emotional gas. Applying for long shot jobs. I was telling the just previous caller if you apply to, to Google, to Apple, to Facebook, you know. There, your chances are really small unless you're really a superstar you have a big in and even many just decent jobs often get a lot of applications so unless you meet at least most of the jobs requirements you know in the ad don't waste your time and emotional gas especially if it's a large branding company as I said to the caller if the employer wanted to hire someone who lacks half the requirements he or she would hire somebody she's sleeping with or a relative or their wayward cousin Gomer And the final of the gas guzzlers I want to warn you about uh, if you're a job seeker is to compare yourself with others. Your gas drains when you compare yourself with peers or relatives who are doing better than you are. I know it's easier said than done, but try to focus on doing a good job in your job search moment by moment, being Buddhist about it, being in the moment. Maybe comparing your performance today with your performance yesterday, but that's it. Now, those are the gas guzzlers, externalizing responsibility, excessive rumination, confusion about how to do the job search, applying for long shot jobs, and comparing yourself with others. But now I want to turn to ways to boost your cruising range, ways to maximize the chances that you will not run out of gas, emotional gas, before you land a job. The first is, it's going to make you vomit, but it's the truth. You've got to chart your baby steps. List small daily goals. For example, make... You might decide you want to make one networking reach out and apply to one well-suited job each day. Chart whether you've achieved your daily goal. Maybe you want to share that with a friend or your Facebook friends. I want to share a lot more of those, but I'm going to give out the phone number. If you've got a work-related problem, that is what I do here. Answer your work-life questions. Try to help you solve your problem, at least help you take a (coughs) baby step forward. The phone number here, work with Marty Nemco for what I call a workover, 415-841-841. 4134. That's 415 841 4134. The next tip for boosting your cruising range so that you don't run out of emotional gas before you land a job 
is to socialize. Now, that kills three birds with one stone. It's rejuvenating. Even if you're an introvert, socialize your way, one-on-one, in a quiet environment. It doesn't have to be a hoo-ha party. So, socializing is rejuvenating. It's a way to build your network. And it provides natural opportunities to ask for a job lead instead of cold calling somebody. You're at a party. They're going to ask, how are you doing? What's up? And at the right moment, you can say you're between jobs and you're looking for a job that, as our previous caller, you know, who would, uh, who would love to translate his experience in managing in the nonprofit sector to managing in the for-profit sector. Um, and a variant on that as a way of boosting your cruising range is to network the fun way. As I've been saying, many jobs are landing through one's network. I'm sure you're sick of hearing it. But what's maybe spoken about less often, please network the way or ways that you find pleasant. Are you an emailer? Are you a phoner? Are you a luncher? Are you a hiker? Are you a party thrower? Whatever. The least gas-guzzling networking method is the one you're going to gladly use. The next way to boost your cruising range is keep it simple. For example, instead of targeting dozens of employers, focus on your few first-choice realistic organizations. Learn about them and then reach out to your real network and your LinkedIn network, which isn't so real, to get leads there. Another example of keeping it simple? When you're applying for a job, spend no more than one hour, one hour, adapting your standard resume and cover letter to fit the job opening. By the way, very often today, there's no room for a cover letter, a separate place, so you just append it directly into your resume. So when you're uploading your resume, just put your cover letter either up, you know, in, uh, up front before you get to the resume in one, in one doc, in that one, in that one document. Okay. Um, spending more than about an hour on your resume, uh, your, your generic template resume and cover letter, um, is likely to guzzle more gas than is justified by the improvement in your chances of landing the job. Next way to boost your cruising range? Take an interim job. If you're unemployed and you're staring at the walls, that guzzles gas. Sometimes taking an interim job, even as that Uber driver who called just before, or as a retail clerk or a barista, it gets you out meeting people and building confidence all while making a few pesos. Another way to boost your cruising range if you're a job seeker? Learn something. Choose something that's career-boosting, which could add to your resume. And it especially boosts your cruising range if you're learning something you'd find fun, or at least pleasant, to study. And if you learned it your way, whether is it self-study with a tutor, self-study without a tutor, or taking a highly rated course, in-person course, online course, but learning something is a great way to avoid burning out in your job search uh, and increasing your chances of getting a job in a reasonable amount of time. And finally, recreation. Job seekers need not spend eight hours a day in their job search. If you are unemployed, four hours a day is fine. If you're employed, one hour a day is fine. Fill some of the rest of your time with activities you find fun, literally just plain old fun a sport, a creative outlet, whatever. If you do that and when you're back in the saddle, you're going to find that you're, you're less burned out, you're going to seem fresher, less desperate, or in using this metaphor, you'll find that your cruising range has been extended. Especially with the unemployment rate at a record low, that should be inspiring. 
so that these tactics for for avoiding gas guzzling your emotional gas tank and for boosting your cruising range should, and forgive me for continuing this stupid metaphor, but it should help you make it to the finish line. Okay, phone number again. If you've got a work-related problem of any sort, um, whether you're you know a blue-collar person or an executive, for-profit sector, non-profit sector, government, as long as you're unhappy, <laughs> that's the common denominator. I will do my best to make you happier and more successful in your work life. Or if you don't have a work life, help you to find a reasonable goal, not a Pollyanna goal, but a goal that is exciting enough and yet is not la-la land, dreamland. The phone number at Work With Marty Nemco, 4 or work over 415-841-4134. That's 415-841-4134. On a very different topic, you know, um, I try to spend a good chunk of the show focusing on individually helping you, but I also like to talk about the macro issues. And um, there's a, a big interesting issue, which is, you know, Emeryville has the highest has just has the highest minimum wage in the nation. It's sixteen dollars and thirty cents an hour, and it's scheduled to increase every year. Um, and again, we tend to view it one way or the other. We tend to view, oh yeah, we need to raise the minimum wage, and I can certainly understand that. And in fact, in balance, I'm in favor of a living wage, a national living wage. But there's another side, and you know, as I keep saying, I'm obsessed with balance. So I did the in preparing for the show. I made the the best arguments I could for having a national living wage, as Bernie Sanders wants, and the arguments against. But I want to prioritize you, my dear listeners. So we'll go to the phones. Welcome to work with Marty Nemco. It's your turn on the air. How can I help you? Hi. Hello. Um, <laughs> can you hear me? I hear you beautifully. Oh, okay, wonderful. Um. Yeah, I had a question. I'm I'm currently looking for work, and um, I I've had a, what I would consider a fairly successful job search, but um, not not any bites at the end. I'll go through an interview process, you know, uh, at at a high profile company. Mm. Um, I won't get the job. I'll get called back for another mm. position at the same mm. wow. company. Wow, you were same close. Thing. Sorry, you were close. Yeah, well, even even to the point of being like last two candidates, and this has happened a couple of times okay. in the same company. Okay. When would you say, like, would you say that's that's worth pers- persisting in, or would you say it's time to like cut bait because neither, like neither it's how, time for diagnosis. Yeah. It's time is is the problem in the interviews, or sometimes if you've gotten that far, have they checked your references, and are there any references sabotaging you? I'm not sure. I think I think what happens is like an internal candidate will get hired. Oh, they'll have an expert in the subject area, or you know, like I think I think that's that's more the issue. Getting getting like really really close, but it's it, it, it's like it's wonderful and frustrating at the same time. And I'm just wondering how many times can I be like stood up for the dance? Uh, yeah, no, I I don't. I would not give up yet. You've gotten too close, and if you're telling me you don't think it's your interviewing your references, you know they they may say they have an internal candidate or an expert, but sometimes it requires really being extraordinary. So I'm going to tick off a few extraordinary things that, in the most competitive jobs, what can can make somebody stand out and beat out the inside candidate. Not always, but you don't sound like you should be giving up yet. But have you done any of the following? This is like going to be like a one or two minute lecture about just like a, kind of a buffet of, of things that some of my winning candidates do when they're competing for a, a, a job. Number one, they go to the whiteboard. When somebody asks them a question, 
they manage to maximize that question. And they say, well, let me give you an idea of how I would address that. I would structure it like this. That's very leaderly. It's very memorable. And it's not what the average person does. Have you? Ever, I'll stop with, I'll take them one at a time. Have you ever done that? No. Okay. And it, nothing works all the time. There are times when that would be seen as audacious and you shouldn't do it. But that kind of stuff works. I'm not asking you to lie or exaggerate or any of that. But sometimes being leaderly in taking control mm-hmm. and showing how you think. That's one of the things they're always looking for is how well can this person conceptualize a problem? How well could they develop a plan for solving it? Not so much what the, whether the answer is right. It's like Microsoft used to always ask, what makes a, you know, why are manholes round? They didn't care about the answer. How would you move Mount Fuji? It doesn't mean that they care about your answer. They care about your, your rigorous analytical thinking skills. So going to the whiteboard and laying out a thoughtful, multivariate approach to how you would address a, a thorny problem can be very impressive. That's one. Mm-hmm. Fair enough? Now I'm going to give you a couple more. Well, well, three is always a magic number, so I'll try to come up with two others. Okay. Have you written either pre the interview, your final interviews, or after the final interviews, a proposal? Everybody writes a thank you note. Those are useless. They add no increased probability of you getting hired. None. What adds credibility is if you write something and say, you know, in light of the first three interviews, it seems like a real priority is X. And here are some of my more considered thoughts about how I would address X if hired. And you send that to, and that can often push you over the edge. Uh, Or after your final interview, you say you've gotten all the way to the end and they end up hiring, sending instead of a stupid thank you note, thank you for the pleasure of dealing or working with you and getting nine interviews and torturing me and putting me through the gauntlet. Instead of saying, you know, I I did appreciate interviewing with you because your question, for example, about this was very thoughtful. I appreciate the professional way in which you treated me. But I've also had, it seems clear to me that you're interested in uh, particularly interested in, in the candidate, successful candidate doing X. And I thought it might be of value to you, whether you hire me or not, to hear some of my considered thoughts on that. Have you ever done that? Um, I've, I've done a variation, maybe not as lengthy or in detail, but I have given follow-up ideas or thoughts on, on how to tackle a specific problem that, that came up during the interview or the discussion. Yeah, and it may be that's all you need to do, but there's an old old adage in the uh, advertising business, which is long sells. Nobody's asking you to write a 20-page paper, but if you were to write a two-pager with a bunch of bullets, that's, you know, rather than just embedding an idea or two in a letter, that mm-hmm. could could make you, again, when you're close, it's not going to turn a, a, a bottom-of-the-barrel candidate into the winner, but it can take the, you know, the second-place person and put him or her make over the top. First. Make mm-hmm. sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, And, and yeah, the absolutely. third thing, the third thing I want to suggest is, before they ask for your references, after you've had a couple of interviews, if you have somebody who is a very credible person who writes well, speaks well, and maybe ideally even knows somebody at the target company, having that person write uh, you know, an email or a, pick up the phone and say, you know, I heard that Mary Jones is applying for this job. Uh, it re- I just felt I need to throw my two cents in there. She's really great. She's particularly good at X, X being one of the things that the, uh, that the employer is looking for. That third-party mm-hmm. externality, ec- that external um, praise can often push you over the edge. Have you ever done that? I haven't done that. The question I guess I have with that is, that that person would have to know someone on not the Not necessarily, no. 
Like I said, ideally, yes, but not necessarily. If, let's say, this is a person who loves you but doesn't know anybody on the hiring committee, and but that person writes an email to whatever, the, the recruiter or whatever, and said, you know, I hear that Mary Jones is applying for this position. I felt I had to throw my two cents in. She's really great at X, Y, and Z. Even though, you know, uh, your reference doesn't know any of the people on the, on the uh, selection committee, it doesn't. It, it would still add. It's the kind of thing. Again, it's it's the cherry on top of the Sunday. It's not the Sunday, but it's worth. It's you know. Uh, it's it's something that's worth doing. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, but but I I'm just I'm a little. Um, I, I guess I'm I'm unsure if that would be welcome in one of the then larger don't. companies. Well, it, it, uh, it you know what it sometimes is and sometimes it isn't. It can't really hurt you. But it, it's always, it's like when I tell my clients about any aspect of job seeking, if it's feeling wrong for you or in that context, don't do it. Then just mm-hmm. take this from, you know, this, take from this phone call the idea that maybe you're going to be a little more thorough in the ideas you propose, uh, you know, afterwards, or you're going to go to the whiteboard and just do it, what's within your, within reasonable, your, you have, you're the final arbiter. I am the consigliere. I'm not the Don. You're the Don. Right, 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 right. Okay. Okay. Um, and just, just to kind of circle back onto something, I mean, you, you've mentioned I haven't gotten to the point where they've asked me for references, okay. but, like, I, I imagine that any company with itself is going to call and make references. Like, what what would you say about, um, what would be a, a strategy to handle if, if you know, that is what's tripping, tripping things up? The reality is that two-thirds of them, it's amazing about it, a full third of employers don't actually check references, but most good companies would. So... Um, what you normally the best thing to do is um, ideally you know even if you if you did not have a good relationship with your previous boss not listing them is going to be a red flag so you normally have to list your previous boss but you can what you can do is prime them let's say you had a mixed experience with your past boss it's appropriate mm-hmm. for you to have coffee with that boss and explain why you're excited about this particular position or whatever and saying something like, you know, I know we've had some tough, tough times together, a troubled relationship or whatever it is, but I also appreciate a lot of what we did. And I'm partic- you know, and you can point out specifics of what you appreciated about that boss and the work you did together, remind him or her of the good things, and then say, I'm really excited about this new job. But of course, unless I get a, a, a positive reference from my previous boss, my chances are diminished. Do you, can you see your way clear to giving me a positive reference? And that nothing always works, but that, again, it incrementally boosts your, boosts your chances. And if they say no, well, then you really know you can't list your boss as a reference because it's better to not list the boss and hope they don't call your boss and just call the references that you've listed. But mm-hmm. having that conversation with your past boss is often a way to up, the, up your game, even if your boss liked you. You know, it's a way mm-hmm. to remind him or her of the things that you do, that you did well, that were fond memories, and that's going to end up finding its way into the reference. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. And normally you want to provide three. Ideally, as I said, your boss, but if your boss is going to be too risky, even after you've had the meeting, then list the three people who love your butt, because everybody's got positive references. So just like there's great inflation in colleges, there's tremendous reference inflation. So unless the unless your referrer says that you're Jesus incarnate, um, you know it's not going to add to your to your hireability. Hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. That sounds good. Okay. 
Anything else? We, um, any pictures of getting off the phone now? Is there anything that feels un, unbuttoned up? No, it feels it feels good. There were some new points I hadn't considered, and um, yeah, hate hate the idea of jumping on the whiteboard, but I'm I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna practice. Well, you know, at minimum, practice. Even if you never do it, and you're not jumping up to the whiteboard and saying it at your seat, role-playing that with your best friend or by yourself is going to boost your competence and your confidence. Thinking about the kind of questions you're most likely to be asked that are complex is going to be a really good way for you to prepare for the interview, and it's a nice, in terms of your own career development, you're likely to grow from, from, from being able to do that. My wife used to be terrified of public speaking, but she was forced to give little talks to three people, five people, speak up at meetings. She's now given keynote speeches before thousands. She's testified before Congress many times, and she loves it. So don't think yeah. of this as an immutable, like you're, you're, you're doomed to ever be terrified of being in front of a whiteboard. If you're trying to get promoted at a, at a, or hired at a major company, you're going to need to be get at least reasonably comfortable with it. So practice. Practice by yourself. Practice with with somebody you completely trust. Okay. That that okay is so tepid. Are you feeling unhappy? No, I mean it's 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 a it's a it's a resign. I'm going to do it, but <laughs> I might not like it until I like it. Yes, but how, can you make it fun? Is there a way you could make it fun? Is there any way you could? Do it in such a way. Would you have it fun to? Would you find it fun to watch yourself on YouTube, or would you hate it? Would you rather do it with your romantic partner, with your mother, uh, by yourself? You know, give yourself a reward afterwards. What could make the practice fun? Right. Yeah, I what? get your point. What? What would make it fun for you? Um, maybe to do it in front of my dog. I just wouldn't. Great. <laughs> I'll start with that. I want you to do it in front. You know, I told you, I've said a number of times. I, you know, I had my lovely, lovely doggy Einstein for 13 and a half years, and he died a few weeks ago. And I just oh, this so afternoon, sorry. oh, it's very painful. Um, and yet, just this afternoon, guess what I did? I you adopted ad a puppy. I had not a puppy. Dog. I adopted a one and a half year old doggy from the Milpitas Humane Society, a wonderful place. I want to give him a plug. Anyway, I got to go. The show is over. Yes, do practice in front of your doggy. Okay, okay. All right. Good luck to you. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thanks for calling work with Marty Nemco. And that is the show for this week. I want to thank my board operator, Joanne Marr, and, of course, all of you for listening and calling in. Please join me again next Thursday at 7 p.m. You can call in for a workover. Plus, retired detective and author of the book NYPD, that is New York Police Department, Through the Looking Glass, stories from inside America's largest police department. Until then, this is Marty Nemco reminding you that we find comfort among those who agree with us, growth among those who don't.